<sighs> so I, I couldn't resist bringing my favorite poem for Transforming the Judgmental Mind Retreat. And it's by a retreatant. His name is Ted Weinstein. I did hear a rumor that this poem emerged after a Spirit Rock retreat that was not a Transforming Judgmental Mind Retreat. I don't know if that rumor is true, but it's called Ways That I Have Been a Bad Meditator. Number one, I have swallowed repeatedly. (laughs) Number two, I have thought about eating a piece of dark chocolate. Uh, Number three, so you can almost put in parentheses before these, I judged myself because... I have moved my leg because I could not endure the pain in my knee. I have wondered whether I left the oven on. You can just imagine day three of the retreat, having that wondering arise, and then the following stream of judgments. Wait a second, the house would already be burned down. (laughs) I have tried to slow my breathing. I have looked at my watch before the meditation bell rang. I've thought about shushing the heavy breathing man on the cushion to my right. I'm sure we haven't had any thoughts like that here. I have wanted the teacher to notice how well I am meditating. I've wondered if, how the teacher could really meditate while constantly checking to see if it's time to ring the bell. <laughs> you never judge us, right? <laughs> I mean, we're sitting ducks up here. If the judgments are going to keep burping up, we're the most obvious target. We know it. <laughs> Uh, I have focused on the rising and falling of my stomach while breathing when I was trying to focus on the sensation of the breath going in and out in my nostrils. I have decided that meditation retreats are a waste of time. I have wanted to jump up and ring the bell at the end of the group sitting. I've opened my eyes to look and see if the teacher's eyes are open. I've been annoyed at the bird outside that will not stop cawing. I've told myself, I'm a bad meditator. So, we're in good company. Sometimes we say if we put a loudspeaker up to each one of these discursive minds, uh, well... Need I say more? Thank goodness we don't have that level of technology here. Be torture. So during this week of practice, we're offering uh, obviously an integrative approach to working with judgments. So just lay out the map again here at the beginning. Of course, we're beginning with the quality of mindfulness itself, mindfulness of all objects. And then more specifically, uh, we're working with somatic practices, mindfulness in the nervous system. We're practicing with inquiry into habitual patterns, specifically mental states like the dropping down practice that we were introduced to or reintroduced to this afternoon. The heart practices and shifting the center of gravity out of the unskillful into the skillful. And then I would add to that map that an important part of our process here is the presence of community and wise friends. 
It'd be a lot harder to do what we're doing if we were sitting here alone. Right? I mean, we wouldn't get triggered as much for one thing. But we wouldn't feel the silent cheers either. And then the last piece of the map we've mentioned in passing, I'll mention it again, which is really that there are various times in our cycle of practice, whether it's working with judgments or just our spiritual life in general, where complementary modalities are really helpful. So things like body work, psychotherapy, uh, artistic expression, movement practice. So in this retreat, we're including the movement practice as kind of representing complementary modalities. But they can be really important. The Dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good at the end. And one of our contributions as a Western culture, as Dharma moves from East to West, is that we're developing our own language and our own range of tools that expand beyond the traditional teachings. And in fact, as the traditional teachings have moved from country to country and culture to culture, that's always been the case. So we're offering something. So we'll talk about some of these pieces of the map tonight. Again, a type of overview and going a little bit more into detail. And I want to start with ground. I want to start with the body and the level of the nervous system itself. So when we're talking about groundedness, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the nervous system, it's helpful before the practice, during the practice, and after the practice. And it's particularly helpful when, we, when the charge goes up a lot. And that can happen suddenly and can be quite a surprise, as we're beginning to discover already. So in a way, we can think of the body as a neutralizing force. Not that the body is neutral, but the body can ground us into less reactivity. We move out of the thinking and into a more simple, direct experience. So sometimes I think of the body in this practice as the grounding rod of the middle way. What do I mean by the middle way? Well, interestingly, after the Buddha was awakened, he went and found his five wise friends who, by the way, had really judged him when he stopped practicing with them before he was enlightened. They all practiced together, and they had their way of doing it, and it was quite extreme. And he had an intuition that it was too extreme. And so he went off on his own and did his own thing. And we know that this story of judgment between friends happened because by going his own way, he actually fully awakened. And so he came back to his friends. And at first, when he was walking towards them, uh, as the story goes, there was a little muttering among these five spiritual practitioners. You know, here comes Siddhartha. Ignore him. He's, he's fallen off the way of practice. But as the Buddha moved towards them, it was so clear that something had transformed. Something had given way. There was something to connect with and be understood. And so, in fact, they welcomed him. And he could have shared anything with them about his experience. I really think about that. The words that he chose and the way they've been translated since to articulate his first expression of what he had understood. 
And the translation that we have, or at least one of them, goes like this. My friends. So imagine his five friends around him who had just dropped their judgments of him and said, I'm ready to learn. I'm ready to be teachable. He said, my friends, there are these two extremes that ought to be avoided by one who's gone forth in the spiritual path. What two? Well, the extreme of overindulgence and the extreme of kind of self-mortification, or we could say beating ourselves up to the nth degree in terms of the context of this retreat. And there's a middle way that avoids those two extremes, and that's the middle way that's been understood by me. This is the middle way that is now going to be lived by me. Join me. Join me so I'm not alone. I imagine the Buddha saying, So I think of the body as this grounding rod that tells us when we've beat ourselves up too much, when we've gotten a big head. You know, we use all these metaphors, they're bodily oriented because the body is, the, is one of the ways home, right? So talk a little about this in relation to the dropping down practice. First, I want to reiterate what the prerequisites of the practice are, which are firstly that we don't want to be thinking a huge amount right before we do the practice of dropping down below the judgment thought into the core of the body. If the thinking mind is going berserk, that's not a good time to drop down. We'll just pop right back up into thinking again. Uh, The momentum's too strong. So that's the first. The second simple way of putting it is the spirit of acceptance with direct experience as it is when we drop down. And then the third is that we are not going looking for trouble. And you might think, well, wait a second, if we're calling a judgment to mind and dropping into the body, aren't we looking for trouble? Well, yes. And no. What I mean by don't go looking for trouble is we don't pull up our deepest childhood horrific material. We don't move into areas that we know have traumatic impact. Uh, We work at a level of charge and intensity that we can actually be present in. We're not trying to create a setup for more dissociation, for more defenses, for more avoidance here. We're creating a setup for presence, clarity, and awakening. So then the question arises, and it's come up in the groups, and it came up, of course, in the hall this afternoon, and I said I would respond a little more to that. What happens if we're sitting here minding our own business and meditation, and uh, it's suggested that we do the dropping down practice a couple times, and maybe on a scale of 1 to 10 of difficulty, it's suggested that we choose a 6. Okay, well, use our best sense of what a six would be and we call up the judgment we feed the story just enough to get the charge going and then we let the story go and we drop down into the body and oh my goodness out of nowhere a complete surprise it moves from a level six to a level 17 and a half and the scale is only one to ten this happens and it's why I say that the the mindfulness of the body and the mindfulness of the nervous system level is very important before practice as well as during and after practice. If we've given ourselves the cultivation of more resiliency, 
in embodiment and in the nervous system before we do these more intense somatic practices, we're going to have more capacity to meet the startle of, oh my gosh, I thought it was a 6 and it's a 12. So it's why yesterday morning, uh, one of our practice periods, I kind of went through some basic mindfulness in the nervous system practices. I'll mention them again, because it's easy to hear them once and then forget, especially because our grown-up, highly educated minds don't take these practices seriously, necessarily, because they're so ridiculously simple. So let's say that we did the dropping down practice and the reactivity spiked. And and maybe the breath got shallow or it, it got panting or we started leaving the body or all the things that we do and we notice it. Oh, that is such a sweet moment to actually catch that. Huge. In that moment, we have a lot of choices. One of the simplest immediate choices is to take a deeper breath. Bring in air. You know, we spend all this time in insight meditation saying, do not manipulate the breath, normal, natural breath. And the answer is yes. We're not doing breath manipulation meditation. But let's say we have a big startle or a big emotion. Bring in some more air. It's a resource. The other thing that's a really supportive response, if your intuition says yes, is to open the eyes. Because even though we know intellectually we're here in this meditation hall and we feel as safe and protected as we do here at Spirit Rock, if we actually open the eyes and see, you know, it's it's amazing up here. You open your eyes and you look out the window, it's beautiful. That beautiful view starts to settle out. The ah, sometimes quite quickly. So we can open the eyes. And one of the things we can notice is there's enough air in the room to breathe. Another way of talking about this is noticing their space. Really, really helps with high reactivity. And then, you know, if things are still really difficult, the practice of orienting that we were talking about yesterday, actually turning the neck, try it out right now. Again, this is the pre-practice right now, or maybe you're really activated, so it's the during. Turning the neck... Look at the windows, where are the exits? You will notice there are one, two, three exits in this hall. There's enough space, enough air in the room to breathe. That actually tells the deep somatic level that the red alert it's experiencing isn't the whole world. It's just part of experience. It's not the whole experience. So spaciousness. And then again, this quality of grounding itself. Um, feeling the ground, uh, putting a hand on the earth as Siddhartha did during his kind of peak moment of being bombarded by everything. The earth is my witness, feeling the feet. It's kind of funny, I've been teaching about this for long enough that there are some retreats I teach, usually not so much at Spirit Rock, but smaller retreats I teach in my own community, and I'll look out during the meditation, and almost guaranteed there'll be at least one person that just cut their hand on the earth. Or like the compassion practice, putting one hand on the heart and one on the guts. It's like in my own local community, we've really given ourselves permission to um, do what needs to be done to support awakening. 
So, of course, there's invitation here as well. And then yet another kind of resource that I think of is connected with the body because I think of it as earth element. Now, here we are, we're sitting here, this earth element, thinking about how downstairs they're doing 32 parts of the body practice. And they're moving through all the different parts of the body with mindfulness. And, you know, one of them is the bones. And here we are, these bones, the skeleton sitting here, this earth body. And to use the resource of the external earth body as well. When I was walking up here, the moon, right, is rising. so beautiful. I hope you had a chance to notice. And it reminded me, as so often we have a sense contact, you know, like a sight and a memory comes up of another time. And in that very moment of seeing the moon and taking in the moon, this memory came up of another moon here at Spirit Rock. And I was down by the creek, down below the meditation hall. And it was a hard day on retreat. I don't remember exactly what I was grappling with, but I was certainly judging myself for it. You know, and, and, and kind of the judgment was internal and then it kind of would spew out and glue itself onto whatever else was available the way that it does. And so I just figured, I need some space. I'm going to go down by the creek. And it was night. And the moon was rising. And it was so beautiful. And my eyes just filled with tears. And... What I remember thinking was this question. And I was like, the moonlight on the water was so beautiful. That moved me to tears. And the question was, how can I bear this level of beauty in the face of this level of pain? And the natural world itself answered that question without words. Just through its suchness. I've spent so many nights and hours and days just all over the place on this land. I remember one retreat in particular. I was just out every night meditating, and the moon was my most important teacher that retreat. The teachers were fabulous, but the moon was my teacher. So in that way, we can also settle the nervous system. You know, gravity is a force greater than ourselves. We can take refuge in that which is greater than ourselves. So we move from mindfulness in the nervous system to these heart practices. I'm going to give a whole talk in a couple of nights about these heart practices and the journey of the heart. So it's kind of just an overview that we use this term over and over that the heart practices are shifting the center of gravity from what I think of as shifting from cycles of reactivity into cycles of awakening. So we're just shifting the center of gravity. Uh, So the heart practices are an antidote to reactivity. And in terms of the flavors, I think about metta as bringing more space, collecting the mind and heart around friendliness, And really making note again, as we did yesterday, about how important the quality of forgiveness is as part of the metta practice. Because sometimes it's really hard to be friendly and kind until we've dropped that load. And we're dropping the load for ourselves, we're dropping it for the other, we're dropping it for everybody who can't drop that load in this moment. 
And, of course, then sometimes we pick it up again. So we'll be doing a guided forgiveness practice tomorrow, and we'll speak more about that as the retreat progresses. And then when that same awakened heart meets pain, mine and yours, it transforms in its wisdom to compassion. When that awakened heart meets joy, um, especially yours, it oozes out as sympathetic joy, gratitude, appreciation. And then this quality of equanimity, which is key with working with any kind of reactivity at all. If we don't have the balance of mind and heart that in its wisdom knows that there's just cycles of gain and loss and praise and blame and joys and sorrows, without that wisdom, without that balance, it's really hard to work with this, uh, almost think of it like we're playing the scales, working with reactivity one, reactivity nine, then back down to four. Sometimes we think we're working with reactivity one, and we are, and then all of a sudden it jumps a scale into, you know, a 12. It's unbelievable. We need a lot of balance of mind and heart, and understanding about changing conditions to meet that. Mindfulness. Just thinking about how important a sense of the kind of the spirit of mindfulness, not just the technical aspects of it, but the attitude that we bring to it. So the importance of playfulness and friendliness and humor is an attitude. Somebody gave this cartoon to me right before I came on retreat. And it's a cartoon of a just kind of a, a basic suburban house. It looks like there's a little dog in the second story window. And there's a pathway to the front door and there's a little picket fence around the outside. And on the picket fence, there's a sign. And the sign says, beware of everything. (laughs) I mean, if we can have a sense of humor about it, we take it a lot less personally. Sometimes the mind and practice is just, beware of everything. It's like we become hypervigilant in our concern and, and deep caring to get it right and all of this. All of this. So I want to expand a little bit on this metaphor that we've been using to describe mindfulness, especially in the context of this retreat. But really, it's mindfulness in general. We've been talking about the active and passive qualities of mindfulness. And this last May, I was teaching a retreat here at Spirit Rock, and one of the teachers on my teaching team was Gil Fronsdale. He's a Spirit Rock teacher here. And we were teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness for a week. And Gil had an analogy for this active and passive qualities of mindfulness that I really liked. And he talked about it as paddling and floating. I think that works really well here. When we're doing metta practice, for example, it's like phrase after phrase, we're cranking them out, muse after muse. It can feel like a lot of work sometimes. We're paddling hard. And of course, sometimes we're just paddling hard to keep our head above water around here. And then we need those moments where we remember that it's really okay and actually needed to just roll over and float. You know, just roll over and float down the stream. 
So in terms of the paddling qualities of mindfulness, these active qualities, observing, knowing, the cultivation of calm, reflection, and understanding are all paddling. They're all active qualities of mindfulness. And then the floating quality of mindfulness, the receptivity, the rolling on our back, metaphorically letting the sunshine on our face, and just like, is really the quality of awareness itself. This non-doing, the quality of deep knowing that meets experience. There's nothing to be done. There's nobody to do it. It's receptive. We get to float. We get to float down the stream to awakening in that receptive quality. But of course, if we just float forever, you know, we might get caught in an eddy or, or run into a rock and, you know, the boat breaks or all this stuff. So we need to paddle. We need to be able to paddle. We need to be able to float. Since three of you journeyed here from Australia, so much appreciation for the journey that you made. I wanted to bring in a short teaching from Ajahn Brahm. Ajahn Brahm is a senior monastic teacher in the Western Thai forest lineage. And his home monastery is in Perth. And he talks about these same qualities as doing and knowing. And really balancing when we're doing the practice and when the doing of the practice has enough momentum that we can just rest back into the knowing quality itself and allow that to be in the foreground. Lovely teaching. So what I want to encourage us is that even though we're doing a lot of paddling here, there's always full permission to float. You know, don't forget to float especially as we kind of get our momentum going in the retreat. This first couple days is about gathering steam. Then you sort of start to move along. Thinking about Sylvia Borstein, Donald and I teach a lot with her. She says, don't fiddle. You know, do the practice, but you don't need to fiddle. It's okay. Just imagine her voice saying, you don't need to fiddle. It's just okay. I'm going to bring in one particular practice of mindfulness and working with the judgmental mind that this will probably be the only time that we'll teach it. Some of you know this practice in the context of insight meditation, so I'm just going to tailor it a little bit for judgment work. It's using an acronym. I really like acronyms because they're easy to remember in moments of duress when all the other tools kind of disappear. And the acronym is RAIN. R-A-I-N. So it's recognize, accept, investigate, non-identification. And it's, it's really very much what we're already doing here. So I'm giving a map for something that's already happening. So if we talk about recognize, that would be naming when a judgment ha- happens, naming a judgment. That would be coming up with our top ten tunes of judgment. So giving them a specific label. One of my favorite times to work with recognize is at meals with judgments. Just going down the food line, if the really subtle ones are counted, it's like, how many dozens? And then we sit down across from somebody, 
Ay, ay, ay. So this needs a real sense of humor. By the time I get to number 267, usually I'm either crying or laughing or both, you know, inside. It's like it's so painful and it's so ridiculous. Like, let's not take it too seriously. Another practice I really like to use that falls under recognize, I've been talking about this a lot in the groups, is the joy of developing creative mental notes. A traditional mental note would look like, let's say uh, we're breathing in and it would be rising. That would be the mental note, breathing out, falling, lifting, moving, placing of the feet, traditional mental notes. Creative mental notes are playful. And my favorite creative mental note for working with the judgmental mind actually comes from The Wizard of Oz. And it's at the end of the movie when uh, the great Oz, you know, kind of figure is there. And then there's this little guy behind the curtain running the whole great Oz. And, you know, Toto is like pulling on the curtain. And the whole thing's falling apart, right? And the line is, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. That's the little creative mental note I use when the judgments are just getting so ridiculous and so pervasive and they're protecting something else that's deeper down and it's like they're standing there saying, pay no attention to what's really going on. (laughs) You know, we're going to stay on the surface here. It's safer on the surface, even though sometimes painful. So accept. Accept is really the spirit that I'm offering this with. It's allowing ourselves to smile, uh, to laugh at ourselves in a really gentle way. It's all about tone, right? We can use a mental note with a really judgmental tone or a mental note with a really non-reactive tone. That's our art of meditation to know. But again, to call in Sylvia, you know, what she really says uh, as far as the acceptance goes, something like this. She'll say to somebody, sweetheart, you're in pain. Take a breath. Take another breath. Sweetheart, you're in pain. And so we don't have to wait for Sylvia to come by and tell us. You know, we could tell ourselves. And we are. We are telling ourselves the spirit of acceptance. Investigate. We could... And we are investigating the underlying mind state. So in a way, the invitation of investigation in RAIN is a dropping down practice. You know, we recognize it, we bring the spirit of acceptance, and then we drop down in the body. What's going on here? So dropping down practice is a more nuanced version of investigate. So why do we need to know what the underlying emotions, underlying mind states are? This is called the emotion trap, and it's from, it's from Paul Ekman's book, Emotional Awareness. So that was the book co-authored by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And he talks about how we can be blinded by emotions like desire and anger once they're triggered. He says, once the emotional behavior is set off, a refractory period begins in which... We cannot perceive anything in the external world that is inconsistent with the emotion we are feeling. When we're caught up in anger, for instance, we tend to 
to interpret anything that's said or done as more fuel for the fire. Isn't that true? I'll never forget my most poignant moment of that, where it's just a very judgmental day, and the the anger was uh, fueling it, and it was just this big conglomerate of kind of anger and judgments. And I opened my closet door to pull out a jacket or something, and the jacket got caught in the hanger, and it got caught in another hanger, and I found myself completely enraged at a hanger. <laughs> and at that point, I just cracked up. The bubble burst, and I mean, it was over. That moment actually shifted the center of gravity. The rest of the day was different. But we get into these trances. We need to know what the underlying motion and mental state is so that we can burst the bubble out of, out of the trance. So we have recognize, accept, investigate, non-identification. A more user-friendly version of this N in RAIN is not taking it so personal. So one fun way to not take it so personal is when there's a major judgment attack. Exaggerate it. You know, Take the tone of the mental note and like amp it up or make it even more dramatic or, you know, just exaggerate it as a way of seeing that, oh yeah, we make mountains out of molehills all the time. What if we took it so big that we realize that it's not actually that big? It's one interesting practice. This is from Pema Chodron. It's very helpful to realize that the emotions we have, the negativity and the positivity, are exactly what we need to be fully human, fully awake, and fully alive. Wouldn't that be an interesting attitude to bring to all this? Ah, perfect timing. (laughs) There it is. You're right on time. Thank you. So as we continue to practice this, what we start to see is that, oh, it feels very personal. And on a relative level, it is. And on a universal level, it's a process happening to a system. I said this in one of the groups today. I've come to think of judgments, especially conglomerates of judgments, as burping attacks, which makes absolutely no sense because we don't have burping attacks. We have sneezing attacks. But for some reason, it came to me that, oh, it's just like having a burping attack. Like, do I need to make more of it than that? Maybe not. The Buddha uh, at one time was, actually one of the students of the Buddha was challenged by another practitioner, kind of in a different tradition and said, you know, does, does the Buddha declare anything? Does he teach anything? Kind of judging the Buddha. And in fact, if you look at the suttas, there's just endless amounts of debates where people come in and challenge the Buddha and basically say, who do you think you are and what do you think you're talking about? Uh, so in this particular one, it was like, does he teach anything? Does he know anything? Does he declare anything? And the student of the Buddha's answer was this. I tell you, friend, that the Buddha declares... This is skillful. I tell you, friends, that the Buddha declares this is unskillful. Declaring that this is skillful and this is unskillful, he is declaring a teaching. That's so different than me and mine. It's just like, oh, skillful thought. Oh, unskillful thought. 
not taking it so personally. This is skillful. This is unskillful. Then, of course, there's the uh, realization that in the tradition, I'm not asking you to believe this, only if it's helpful, there's four stages of awakening. There's four stages of enlightenment. And the key for, the, for our use is that actually the way it's described is the very last stage of enlightenment is the place where the comparing mind fully transformed, the mind that says better, same, or worse. So I just sometimes smile to myself and think, well, you know, if I'm taking the fact that I'm still judging personally, it means that I couldn't be more than three-quarters fully enlightened. No problem. Why not? Why not? So we've talked about body, nervous system, heart, mindfulness. Now we have inquiry into habitual patterns. And I want to mention that in addition to this dropping down practice that we offered today, we're going to be offering other inquiry practices, some of them somatic, some of them more cognitive, to work with kind of what core beliefs, defensive patterns. So there's a whole toolkit. If dropping down isn't resonating for you, number one, the suggestion was try it out at least a couple dozen times before you pass judgment. (laughs) And, you know, there are other practices. There are other tools. And I was reflecting on the importance of the factor of wise effort in doing inquiry practice. Inquiry practice is not something that some of us are as familiar with as the basic mindfulness practice. And so whether it's mindfulness or heart practices or inquiry, we really need wise effort. So wise effort is birthed from supportive mental energy to see this is skillful, this is unskillful in the moment. There's four aspects of it. I just thought I would mention them. The first aspect of wise effort is to prevent the unwholesome from arising. You might think, well, wait a second. So I'm going to prevent something from arising? Isn't that like avoiding something? Well, if the effort isn't wise, yes, then it moves into avoidance. But if the effort is wise, then we move into something like, say there's that person. I'm sure you have one. And that person is just bound to set off all your reactivity and judgments, internally, externally, or both. In the realm of wise effort of preventing the unwholesome from arising, it might be saying, well, I don't need to go have a huge interaction with them when I'm sick or exhausted or, you know, hungry. And if I do need to have an interaction with them, I could apply preventative medicine of having a specific time limit around that so that I'm not going to get so overwhelmed. This is all preventative medicine and wise effort. Number two is when the unwholesome states have arisen to transform. That's exactly what we're doing here. At a meeting, somebody says something, reactivity arises, it's moving quickly from a three to a six. Can we recognize the judgment? Can we drop down? Can we transform it? Or if we're not going to go that direction, maybe it's bringing in one of the beautiful qualities in that moment. Oh, 
I'm in pain. I care about this pain. Transforming in the moment. Third is cultivating the wholesome. And that's really what we're doing with the heart practices. We're not waiting for the wholesome to arise. We're not hoping that someday we'll be bigger, kinder people and fearing that we won't. We're saying, please, metta, come in, you know, as big as you want to be. Or maybe your edge is joy. It's like, oh, how much joy could I cultivate? Now, of course, if we move into wanting it and when it's not there, we start making a thing out of it, that's not wise effort. But we can invite it in and we do. It's one of the things I love about this retreat. And then fourthly, once a wholesome quality of mind has arisen, we can maintain it. We're working tons with continuity with this retreat. And we can perfect it. And that's a process we're not involved in. We're not in charge of choreographing the perfection of any awakened state. We just keep showing up, giving ourselves fully, and not missing when the awakeness is there. It's so easy. How many times in practice check-ins has somebody come in and said something like, I'm bored. It's like, oh yeah, you know, so are you bringing curiosity to that? What's that like for you? How do you experience that? Oh, da, 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 da. And they start describing the experience. And, and this has happened to me too. And I'll look at them and I'll say, hmm, you know, uh, your boredom sounds really calm. Oh yeah, it's calm. Your boredom sounds really peaceful. Oh yeah, it's peaceful. It's like, oh my goodness. These are beautiful, wholesome qualities that have been missed because it just slid immediately over into a slight disconnect from experience that we um, identify as boredom because we're used to more stimulus. That's a way we can really maintain and perfect, be on the lookout for the wholesome. So there's a story about this from the time of the Buddha. It's a, a famous story, but I want to flesh it out a little bit more than is usually told. And it's the story of a monastic, a practitioner. His name was Venerable Sona. Venerable Sona was practicing near, kind of in Rajgir, in the heartland of India, near a wonderful peak called Vulture's Peak, very, very rocky. And the rocks there, I'm sure they were 2,555 years ago, uh, they are sharp. And I'm sure the land has changed and ebbed and flowed, but it's just a very craggy place. And so he was practicing there, and he really, really, really wanted to be free. The way that we do sometimes. And so he just said, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to give it all I've got. And he was doing his sitting meditation and his walking meditation, his sitting meditation and his walking meditation, not so unlike what we do here. And at some point, he started doing walking meditation, and he just said, I'm going to walk until I get free. I bet many of us have done something like that. You know, in fact, Siddhartha, when he sat down under the Bodhi tree the night of his enlightenment, he said, I'm going to sit down and attain enlightenment or die. Uh, I don't recommend that. (laughs) But the spirit of that, I think we do understand, you know, in some simple way. And so he's doing his walking meditation, and he continued that walking meditation until his feet started bleeding. 
He's walking barefoot. Um, and his feet are bleeding, and he's stumbling, limping, falling over, continuing this walking meditation. And finally, no surprise, what happens? He gives up. And he just kind of like crawls back to his meditation spot, and he can't even meditate. His feet are bleeding. I'm sure it was incredibly painful. It's just like, I give up. I can't do this. I'm not good enough to be free. You know, it's just like, oh, that feeling. And the Buddha was nearby at the time, and he uh, sensed that this practitioner was really, really suffering. And, and basically part of that suffering was probably a judgment attack, you know, because Venerable Sona was still less than three-quarters in, enlightened. So we can assume that there was a judgment attack involved in this moment. And so the Buddha came to Venerable Sona, and he said, what's going on, friend? And he said, I, I give up. I'm sorry, teacher. I, I really wanted to please you, I imagine him saying. I mean, can you imagine the Buddha? And, and I can't do this. I can't do this. And the Buddha said, it's okay. You know? He said, when you were a householder, when you were a monastic, um, didn't, you, didn't you play a stringed instrument? Didn't you play the lute? Weren't you really into music? And uh, Venerable Sona said, yes, yes, I played the lute quite beautifully. I loved it. And the Buddha said, well, I have an analogy for you, friend. And the analogy is the analogy of the lute. When wise effort gets off and we tighten the strings too much, they break. When we loosen them too much, the sound isn't melodious. We're trying to develop the art of meditation to get the strings just Right. What is that, the story of the three bears? <laughs> Just right. We should do a whole Dharma talk on the Transforming Judgmental Mind Retreat on um, the, th- the Goldilocks and the three bears. This bed is too hard. <laughs> so anyway, to rewind back to the time of the Buddha. Venerable Sona was very heartened by the Buddha's words He was able to, I'm sure, take care of his injured feet first, a skillful means, and then go back to his practice. And as the story ends, he fully awakened. The end. But it's not the end because this story lives here and now. And I have an interesting postscript that happened 2,555 years later. It actually happened this June. And this last June, I was at an international Buddhist teachers conference. There were about mm, 60 or 70 of us from all Buddhist traditions represented. And this particular Buddhist teachers conference was special in the sense that it was a next-gen teachers conference. So it was one of the first times that um, senior teachers ages, you know, 30, 35, to about 50, gathered together and talked about the experience of being our generation of practitioners and teachers and the differences between the founding generation and ours and uh, the responsibilities that are being passed to us and how to hold those skillfully and support each other, etc., etc. Wonderful conference. So the last night of the conference, we had a community share. And what a community share is, is basically a no-talent talent show. So everybody brought their Dharma music and their Dharma skits and their Dharma jokes, and, uh, you know, we had some good laughs. And at one point, 
this Zen priest came to the front of the community. And his day job, even though he, uh, he and his wife run uh, a Zendo by themselves, his day job is that he's a professor of jazz music at the local university. And so he was going to share with us his jazz guitar. We'd been looking forward to it all day. And so he started tuning the guitar. And the guitar happened to be really out of tune. And the first thing that happened was he turned it too tight, and it just went, and I felt my face contract. I felt like the internal part of the body contract. It's like, contraction is too tight. And being a Zen priest, he immediately got it and made an inside joke. And he said, ah, the strings are too tight. And of course, it was all Buddhist teachers, so we all cracked up. (laughs) Dharma inside jokes. So then he made a little spoof of it and strung the strings too loose and, and started to play a little bit. And it just didn't feel right, you know. It was like the, the attention, my experience of being with this few twangs of too loose couldn't land. There was nothing to land on. That was my felt sense experience. And then, of course, he made it just right. So why do I tell that story? Because that's such a metaphor for how our somatic experience can be a marker. Can be a marker for our own direct experience of when our effort's too tight and when it's too loose. This is the art of meditation that we're developing. Nobody can tell us. You'll have to humor me. There's now a PPS to the Buddha story and then the next Gen conference story. I told this story to somebody, and this particular person had lived for a lot of years in Hawaii. And he said, you know, the lutes in Hawaii, the strings are strung very loose, and that is the right way to string them. And that really leaves open the question, how tight is right? And it really opens the invitation to be in harmony with our paddling and our floating and our art of meditation through our own experience. So lastly, a few words on the importance of wise friends in this practice. This is from Mother Teresa. If you judge people, you have no time to love them. And in working with this RAIN model, recognize, accept, investigate, non-identification, I really use my friends as mirrors. They mirror back to me in sometimes skillful and sometimes probably less than skillful ways about where the learning needs to happen, about what I'm not seeing, about what I might be leaving out. Once the Buddha was asked, what are admirable qualities that a friend emulates. What are admirable qualities that a friend emulates? And he said these four. Firstly, conviction. When our our friend has conviction, they're not a fair-weather friend. They don't go with prevailing winds. They can be clear about what's skillful and unskillful and stand by our side. And we can be that friend as well to ourselves and to others. Secondly, a quality of an admirable friend, virtue or integrity. We can trust 
ourselves as our own friend when we're living in basic integrity as we do, practicing the precepts here, and we can trust others. The third quality is generosity. And the fourth quality is discernment. So that famous question that the Buddha was asked by his cousin Ananda, uh, you know, Buddha, I've had the reflection that friends are half of the holy life. Do you agree? And of course, what was his answer? You know? Yeah, yeah. I said, not so, Ananda, not so. I imagine Ananda like jumping back. I was wrong. I, I wonder whether he went into a judgment attack or not. I'll never know. Not so, Ananda, not so. And as you said, friends, spiritual friends are the whole of the holy life. The whole of the holy life. He also said, uh, the Buddha, a person of integrity doesn't blame or gossip about another's bad points. They praise their good points. So this is an attitude and environment of appreciation. We've all got our stumbling qualities. Person of integrity doesn't blame or gossip another's bad points. They praise their good points. Or, as Pema says... Others will always show you exactly where you are stuck. They say or do something and you automatically get hooked into a familiar way of reacting, shutting down, speeding up, or getting all worked up. When you react in the habitual way, with anger, greed, and so forth, you know, judgment, (laughs) it gives you a chance to see your patterns and work with them honestly and compassionately. Without others provoking you, however, you remain ignorant of your painful habits and cannot train in transforming them into the path of awakening. So here we are. The community is at our back. Please use that support when it's helpful. And uh, when the support is manifesting as showing you where you're stuck, well... Supportive also. We'll close with a poem from Donna Falds. It's a poet and a teacher. It's called Awakening Now. She says, why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells, prized and labeled? No, I cannot step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid. And my motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect, and surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep, and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails, and the refrigerator isn't clean. (laughs) Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. 
now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. What if we really believed that? What if we really believed that and just always kept an eye on the smallest little glimmer of awakeness and allowed it to be worthy? What if? What if we saw that in others? The world would be a different place. So that is what I have to offer for reflection. And thank you for the kindness of your attention. <laughs>